1901, a woman by the name of Annie Taylor climbed into a barrel so that she could ride that barrel over Niagara Falls, the first person to do so. The reason for her crazy endeavor? She was struggling to make ends meet, and she was hoping for fame and financial security. It's Ryan from United Faith Mortgage, a faith and family mortgage team that tries to improve your financial outlook without having to ship you over a 170-foot waterfall. Our mortgage team happens to be an arm of a bigger company who is a direct lender, which means our company gets to use its own money and make its own decisions within its own walls. There's no middleman. This advantage often allows us to get you a better rate, which can save you monthly and lifelong money through a refinance, or help you with a cash-out refinance, cashing out some of your home's equity to use for life. We are United Faith Mortgage. United Faith Mortgage is a DBA of United Mortgage Corp. 25 Melville Park Road, Melville, New York. Licensed mortgage banker. For all licensing information, go to nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Corporate NMLS number 1330. Equal housing lender. Not licensed in Alaska, Hawaii, Georgia, Massachusetts, North Dakota, South Dakota, and Utah. He's a professor of Bible at Moody Bible Institute. He received his PhD from Dallas Theological Seminary, but don't hold that against him. He's published uh, some different (laughs) works and reviews, and he's a contributor to the Moody Bible Commentary, and he's here to answer your questions this morning on Open Line Chat. Good morning, Stephen. Good morning. It's great to be back with you again. It's great to have you as always. And we wanted to start with a question that's kind of a follow-up question when we were talking about the Apocrypha and um, as we began Hanukkah, actually, and talking about where do we find certain stories, especially stories of Jesus as a child. And um, uh, one of our listeners uh, had this question. Okay, and so the question is really about, um, well, let me just read it because uh, I don't understand it because I haven't read the Quran. So the Quran contains six miracles of Jesus as a child, and the Syriac Infancy Gospel also discusses miracles of Jesus as a child. And um, I know that that was part of some of the questioning that came in towards the end of our time together last Monday, but the, the question is, what are your thoughts on, on things like this? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I was at a Christmas event last night, and the in the public sort of reading of retelling of the story of Jesus, the the person who was speaking was asking a lot of questions. You know, what was Jesus like? Did he skin his knee? Did Mary know that when she was praying to God, she was praying to the ba- did Jesus have a crush on a girl, or did maybe a girl have a crush on him? And all these things about his life that are interesting questions. And my thought was. The Bible never addresses any of these things, not once, with the exception of Jesus showing up in the temple to confound the the leaders there. We know almost nothing about his childhood, his his, his growing up years, his adolescence. And one way to say, well, we we have what we have, and this is what the Lord wanted us to have. And so... Those stories are less than relevant for our spiritual lives. Now, the fact that they're not in the Bible would suggest to me there's an opening for somebody to want to create those stories. And so I look at the Syriac infancy not in the gospel or even those stories in the Quran and say, okay, somebody was getting creative there. Why? Because the Bible doesn't give us the information, and so they fill in the gaps. That's not particularly uncommon. In Second Chronicles, the king Manasseh goes off to Babylon and he praise a prayer of repentance, but the Bible doesn't give us what the prayer is. Hmm. And so somebody later composes the apocryphal prayer of Manasseh as if that's the prayer that he prayed. Why? Well, because there was there's a gap in the story. The Bible doesn't give us that information. 
Um, the truth is the Bible doesn't give us all the information that we want. It gives us what we need. And so when we think about Christ, the incarnation that we're celebrating at this time of year really is the key. And then his adult ministry. That's what the focus of the Gospels is. Okay, you're hearing the voice of Dr. Stephen Sanchez. And Stephen, as as you're mentioning, I think that's our own desire to fill in the gaps. If God doesn't speak on something, he said, well, I guess I better fill in the little hole there. And that's really where we get off track and off topic. But uh, I think we just need to trust what God has called us to do and the love letter that he's written for us to put us in the right position to receive what he has for us instead of like getting us off track by maybe filling in the gaps with what we think God thinks about what just happened. I think that's fair. We, we do not like uncertainty mm. and uncertainty is part of the Christian life. We just have to say it. He has not given us everything. He does not intend to ever give us everything. We're going to have to trust him using the knowledge, the information that he has given, like like stepping stones, and to skip from stone to stone to stone based on what he has revealed to us. And those other books are not included in scripture. And so therefore, I would consider them less than trustworthy, to say the least. Okay. If you've got a question for Dr. Stephen Sanchez, text that in at 423-629-8900. Just a quick follow-up on the on the stories in the Quran. Could that be a jump off? Not that you're uh, validating the the what's written about Jesus, but could that be a jump off starting place for having a conversation with a Muslim about who Jesus is? Should be aware of the texts of other, of other uh, people that they interact with. And for sure, demonstrating some, at least, you know, knowledge of the text as you engage with someone is a respectful attitude, even as you then turn and point them to Christ in the gospels. We are right in the middle of Open Line Chat. Dr. Stephen Sanchez is here with us answering your questions here today. Stephen, it's always good to have you with us here on Mornings with Tom good and to Tommy. Yeah. And so, uh, Dr. Sanchez, I wanted to take us back to that discussion about the Apocrypha. And uh, it's not in the Protestant Bible, but it is in the Catholic Bible. And how are we to understand the Apocryphal books, uh, maybe if it's not in our tradition or belief that that was actually scripture? How, how do we talk about it or understand it? That's a great question. And we'll, many of us will have friends if they're of the Catholic faith tradition that will have Bibles that include this extra collection of books in the middle, books with names like First and Second Maccabees and Tobit and the Wisdom of Solomon and Judith, uh, Bell and the Dragon. It's not a Disney movie. That's actually a book of the Apocrypha. Um, these books are books that were used by the Jewish community, but never treated as scripture by the Jews. And that's, that's important. The Jewish Old Testament, the Jewish Torah, the Jewish collection of scripture never included these books. Uh, the early Christian church apparently used them, but uh, understood that they had not been collected by the Jews as part of scripture. And so as the Hebrew Bible gets translated to Latin, Jerome makes notes, hey, these are not included in the Hebrew canon, but the church was already using them for 200 years and started to just roll them in. And at, by the time we get to the Reformation and the reformers are starting to push back on these books, the Catholic church officially designates them deuterocanonical, which is to say a second canon. So they've got the regular Old Testament canon and they have a second canon, these apocryphal books. Um, Protestant churches today, most of them do not consider them scripture at all and do not use them at all. Some denominations will use them in devotions and liturgical readings, but not derive any doctrine from them. 
one of the questions I often get is, should I read these? And it, my answer is usually it depends. Why, why do you want to read them? If somebody says to me, I want to get a little extra, you know, I'm kind of bored with the New Testament. I'm bored with the Old Testament. I want to get some new revelation from God. Nope, forget it. You shouldn't read it. <laughs> Not you. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, if somebody says, well, I'm interested in learning about late first century Judaism. I want to know what's going on in the intertestamental period. I want to use this maybe as a springboard to get my Catholic friends from 1st Maccabees to Romans, which is also in their Bible. I would say, okay, that's more of an, uh, a learning opportunity for you. That'd be great. But I would not send anyone there for revelation or direction from God. Okay. Okay, thank you so much for that, Stephen. It's just mm-hmm. good to to know how, maybe how to treat uh, these books and learning the history of them is, is always good as well. Mm-hmm. And then um, we we do have one question I'd like to ask, and, uh, and and I'll just read it for you. A friend says, "I've seen some Christians making some statements that were uh, that there was not a literal Adam and Eve and Garden of Eden, and yet there are statements of Jesus referring to Adam as an actual person. I mean, how do you suggest we approach this?" Now, this is a tough one. I, you know, I'm sympathetic to people who are trying to square scientific discovery and opinion with scripture. I mean, we live in a world where God has given us eyes to see and hands to build things and investigate our world. Um, but in the end, I think we have to remember that while scripture has to be interpreted for sure, the scientific world also has to be interpreted. And both of these interpretations have to fit together somehow. And for me, I run straight to the New Testament, and I watch Jesus use the stories of creation as if they're fact and depend and and base doctrine and teaching upon them. Jesus is not sitting there saying, well, you know, I'm not sure if Adam ever existed. No, he's quick to say, listen, I know you want to divorce your wives any way you want, but that's not the way God made things in the beginning. He created them male and female and said, you're together. Nobody can uh, separate you. Paul also is going to use creation and Adam and Eve as foundations of the doctrine that he's building. Now, if you want to tell me that Jesus was wrong, okay, we're going to have a problem there. (laughs) Like, I'm going to disagree with you quite strongly. So I'm stuck with saying, Jesus believed this, Paul believed this, I'm going to get right in behind them and stick to that uh, conviction. I might have a hard time interpreting Genesis 1 and 2, and I might have a hard time squaring that interpretation with what the James Webb Space Telescope shows me. But Jesus believed it, and Paul believed it, and I'm going to anchor right to them. It's a good anchor spot. Um, but yeah, as, I think so. <laughs> as, uh, but as we talk about this, it, it kind of brings about some other questions. There are like debates within Christendom, again, about the creation story. There are some that are leaning more evolutionist, if I can call it that. They're saying that the days are more interpretive, and that, but they're not literal days, like one, two, three, four. And then um, that just becomes this huge argument, but but here's the question around those arguments is what does that argument matter if you trust the Lord? So I would love it if you would address that. So, so for sure, Genesis one and two need to be interpreted. I think that's important to remember, like any other data in this conversation, these texts need to be interpreted. And there are a variety of interpretations, a gap theory, a day age theory, progressive creation used to be called theistic evolution. Not anymore. Um, We have to remember that the Bible is making detailed statements about events and about theology and doctrine and who God is. And Christians generally believe that the Bible is inspired down to its very words. 
And so if you tell me that the words say one thing, but mean something else, and it's not sort of intuitively easy to understand, it calls into question the trustworthiness of scripture. And this is why I think this conversation matters. It's one thing for us to all agree when God says that he's my shepherd and I'm a sheep, we all understand I'm not a real sheep, right? I'm not an animal. We, we get that. But when Genesis says he did it in a day and there was evening and there was morning and day one and then evening and morning day two and evening and morning day three, boy, we look at that and say, it sure sounds like 24 hour days. What is going on here? And so it's hard to get away from that suggestion that this is just a literal day. And the God of the universe who can create whatever he wants, whenever he wants, certainly could have done it in six literal days. The question then is how we square that with science and our observations. It causes us to maybe reinterpret, but it's complicated because I don't want to throw shade, as the kids say. I don't want to cast doubt on the trustworthiness of the very words of scripture.